Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. What is up, TSL family? Welcome back from the holidays. Happy 2022, I think. I don't know. Time's not real. Um, We want to first say sorry for the long break after the holidays. Um, Candidly, I contracted Omicron. I'm doing fine. I'm very grateful for being triple vaccinated. Um, Hopefully, if any of the rest of you are dealing with COVID, you had a very, very mild case like I did. And for those who may not be dealing with a mild case, we're really, really sending our best. Stay safe out there. It's a little gnarly. Um, Also, Meg is on a deadline right now, and I'm sharing that because she wanted me to share that with you. Um, Part of being a working writer is grinding through deadlines. And candidly, I think our team is a little tired right now. But that being said, we are so excited. We will be back with a new episode next week. We have self-compassion guru, best-selling author, Kristen Neff, who um, particularly has a great and very sharp way of speaking with creatives to tap into what feels like a more generous and self-compassionate view of our work, which resultingly leads to more efficient, higher quality productivity in our creative lives. So Kristen's amazing. She'll be with us next week. And um, in terms of what we're doing today, it's another best of episode. Thanks to our amazing social media manager, Jess Fisher. Today is solely focused on television writing, craft tips, staffing tips, everything you need to know from some of our best experts. Uh, So without further ado, let's go. I just want to start off the top with the thing that I really want to talk about, uh, Mm -hmm. which is when we were on a panel together, you brought up operational theme. Right. And I just was so fascinated by it. And I don't even know how to ask you about it other than to say, what is an operational theme? And <laughs> you know, how, I, what can we learn about it? Well, look, I, th- I think it's, 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 it's what I call the central dilemma of the character who's the main character in a series. Um, I think whether you're talking about um, serialized storytelling or you know, anthology storytelling, single episode, or even sort of the short form that we all seem to be writing nowadays, which is eight to 13 episode series. Um, you know, we're, we're still making television and we're not making movies or novels. So I think that in order to ensure the longevity of your project, your main character needs to have an irresolvable contradiction in his or her or their um, center, you know, the center of their soul. That's the thing that drives eight hours of drama or you know, I, it's it's funny. I just um, I just finished watching. Um, I know this much is true. The uh, the, the HBO uh, uh, adaptation of the novel, and it's interesting because the, the Mark Ruffalo character, his operational theme is quite literally that he cannot get over his sort of toxic masculinity to have a, a, a to have a real honest communication with anybody. You know, he is he is such a belligerent man and such a wounded guy that he literally just can't get the words out. You know, and it's one of the most interesting ones I've seen because. You know, you like the guy, you want him to get better, but you realize that he's, that he, you know, it's going to be very, very slow going. And I think it's the same thing you see with, for example, Don Draper, you know, his, his operational theme is that he is constantly striving to match up to an ideal life that doesn't actually exist, but he sort of created in his mind when he was, you know, the son of a poor farmer, you know, this, this idealized version of the man in the gray flannel suit. And even as time passes him by with it, he's still trying to be that guy. And look, at the end of at the, end of, the, 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 the really interesting thing about the way Mad Men ended is that Don Draper never changed. 
you know, the show continued to basically live in that contradiction, even to its bitter end. And I think it's, and I think it's something that, that you have to, whether you're doing an eight, a six episode adaptation of, 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 uh, of a Wally Lamb novel, or you're doing Mad Men for seven years, you know, you need to, you need to have that contradiction in the center of your character, because that's, what's going to drive the story. And I think ultimately it's the thing that makes cops, doctors, and lawyers um, so prevalent in television, you know, like cops are obsessed with law and order. They're here to bring about law and order. And the great thing is there's challenges to it coming all the time, <laughs> you know? And, and when you're not writing a show that has that clear franchise, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that pilot writers have to get to is what do my main characters have in them that is gonna stop them from fulfilling everything they want in the pilot episode, <laughs> you know? Right, so and I love the word contradiction. Like there's an, so I think what, is what you're saying that there's an actual contradiction within them. Forget yes. about the outside world. Yes. There might be a contradiction with the outside world. Like yeah. I'm a poor farmer and I want to be the man in the gray suit. But what I, yeah. John Draper is so fascinating because he is driving to be that and yet he is self-sabotaging all yes. over the place. Yes. And that self-sabotage is, is that contradiction, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, and 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 that the great, the man in the gray final suit is unachievable. Like that that whole sort of archetype, it, it, it was invented by people like him. Um, I think, you know, if, if you look at Breaking Bad, I think that, that that has one of the greatest combinations of that contradiction and then the outer uh, circumstances that trigger it. You know, uh, uh, Walter White's inner conflict from the first episode is that he has to save everything that he, uh, that, that he loves and he's unable to, you know, and then he finds out a way. But in order to save everything he loves, he has to become something everyone hates and something that is actually who he really is on the inside, which is this amazingly competent criminal. So that push and pull is, is the center of the series. And it starts from, you know, Jump Street on, on, on Breaking Bad, you know, the, the extraordinary circumstance of he gets the chance to become a drug lord happens in that pilot, but it's something that's inside of him the entire time. Um, and it goes all the way to the end when he, you know, basically becomes evil Batman, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Do you, is there any hint or tricks you can give us or not tricks, but like advice about does that operational theme uh, need to show up as soon as you meet the character in the pilot, or is it something that the pilot is discovering and uncovering as you go? I think, I think it's, I think, you know, look, the character's going to have it in them no matter what. I mean, they, they start with that. Um, you know, it, I think that the first scene of Mad Men is really interesting because it's Don sitting in a restaurant uh, talking to the, uh, the the black waiter who's serving him drinks about whether he smokes Lucky Strikes and why he doesn't smoke Lucky Strikes and all that. And in its own really subtle way, I mean, it's like the scene is basically establishing, you know, Don Draper only kind of knows the world that he lives in and the world that he's created for himself. Um, and he's trying to figure out what the outside world is like. So even as somebody in advertising, his scope of empathy is limited by his own experience. Most people probably don't read that much into that scene, but I mean, that's what I saw, you know, the third or fourth time, because I, I tried to study that pilot to see exactly what you're saying. Um, but you don't really get it until the very end of the pilot when you realize that, you know, you've seen him fucking around, you've seen him drinking, you've seen him at the ad firm, and then you realize, oh my God, this guy has a wife and a kid in, in a suburb. And then you realize that's the unsolvable contradiction. He has all of these negative impulses. And he's also trying to keep up appearances and being, you know, January Jensen's husband and all that. And so I think, I think, you know, look, I, th I think you, you drop the dime in a big way in the, in, in, at the end of the pilot, but I think it's got to be there all along, you know? Right. I'm wondering how you, when you're in your own work, in your own pilot, how you mm -hmm. check it, right? Like, 
does it need to be obvious in every scene? Like mm -hmm. I love the sort of build of it and mm -hmm. then the dropping the dime at, dime at the end. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, I, then... I, I, gotta I gotta tell you, I suck at it. Uh, it's one of, <laughs> um, one of the reasons I wrote the essays because I needed to clarify that shit in my mind. And, and I, one of the things I found out, you know, this is, this is a, a vast exaggeration, but a, a lot of the time, and I think it's true for everybody, by the way, I think this is why younger staff writers and younger writers can be very difficult in the writer's room. It's because your critical faculty grows up long before your, your creative talent and your, and your belief in your creative talent. So it's a lot easier, especially when you're a starting writer to say this sucks or I don't like this than to pitch the fix, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think with, with operational theme, it's something that, that I identified. Um, and look, I'm sure people have said things like it before. I'm not, I'm not, a, but, but it, but it's one of those things where I do now. I mean, I certainly look at all of the pilots that I write and, and think, well, what's the operational theme here? And I was developing something with Jose Molina that, uh, you know, somebody who I do a podcast podcast with um, and also a, a writer producer and a fellow Puerto Rican. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, we were developing this thing and he looks at me and goes, what's the operational theme hobby? And I'm like, Oh crap, <laughs> he's turning it on me. <laughs> you know? So, so uh, you know, it, it's, it's the, the writer hobby writes a little bit more from the heart. And then I go back and I look at it and go, okay, did I actually fulfill any of the intellectual goals that I've, that, that I've laid out for people who read my essays? Right. Um, I, think, I think that's so important, right? We talk on the show a lot about like a barf draft or a birth draft mm -hmm. when the thing just like sort of upends out of you. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to be like, what's the theme? What's the this? What's the this? Like you mm -hmm. do have to honor that process of, yeah. you know, yeah. it coming out that sort of emotional blast of it and then mm -hmm. you can go back in in the second third draft of like mm -hmm. figuring yeah, and, out well, and it's questions. interesting to look at your work sometimes as a dream that there's symbols in there of what of that operational theme but maybe mm -hmm. it's not clear it's like you have to yeah. almost be a detective mm -hmm. of a thing separate from you right and be like where is it like is it that piece of her right there is that it you know, because mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes these characters take on a life of their own, right? Yes, and they're trying to they tell do. you their operational theme and you have mm -hmm. to honor it versus sometimes when I decide what it is and then I try to put it in, it doesn't work as well as, you know, looking for the clues in the yeah. dream itself of what you, what you did. Isn't that, isn't that the best when you like, don't think about it, you write it, you know, because of how, whatever your process is. And then you look back and you go like, oh, I did it. Okay. <laughs> You know, right? And, no, often I, I'm like, oh my God, she has no agency. Again, shit. Okay, I gotta go back. I, that's what I, every time I'm like, oh my God, she's doing nothing. She's watching everything. You intuitively might want to protect your main character and wrap them up in cotton. And then you find out that all the other characters around them are doing all the action of the movie and they're the ones who have agency and your character's kind of stuck. And it's like, I think it's because you don't want to beat them up because they're somehow you. And the, you know, I'm always, my advice always is take out a really big stick and beat the shit out of your main character. Just beat them senseless. The heart, make it harder and harder and harder. Um, and that in comedy, you can enjoy it, right? And sometimes in drama or horror or whatever, you're enjoying it for a different reason, right? But it creates the story. It creates why they change. I mean, I don't know, you know, in TV, um, were you ever, do you ever think about arcs or no, they're just who they are. And the fun is tuning in to see them do it over and over and over. Well, sitcom is a funny beast because you're generally not looking for those characters to change as people. And almost the, the existential joke of a sitcom that keeps running is these people never learn, never get any smarter. 
And guess what? That might possibly be true for the viewer as well in your own life. I mean, let's face it, how much personal growth actually happens and how much is you just repeating the same mistake? So I think that's the that's the trick of a great sitcom is when you when you have characters that work, you don't really want to change it. And oddly enough, I don't think the audience do either. I think it kind of is a gift that keeps giving. It is true. You kind of it's the deliciousness of knowing how they're going to respond and they and they are almost anticipating it, right? Like, oh my God, you just did that to him. He's going to do this. In the show, though, is there any kind of plot shift in terms of those characters? Um they, that they learned something that episode, even though we know we're going to forget it. Like, how do you then set up narrative drive? Is it just all plot based or? Well, for that show, we definitely had arcs for each series in terms of the specific relationships that were happening every season, but no learning, certainly no hugging. It's Britain after all. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, yeah, just basically the final scene of the final episode is the two of them stuck on the sofa. They started the first episode with 12 years earlier and Mark, David Mitchell's character, is thinking, I really must get rid of him, which he's been trying to do for 12 years, and he's never going to, but he keeps wanting to. So I, we love that trap. I mean, is it, a sitcom is a trap in, in some ways. Do you oh, that's find a there's a difference between American sitcoms and British sitcoms in that regard? I don't know. I mean, the ones, the US sitcoms that I watch and love, I don't know if people really change much either, you know, whether it's Seinfeld or Curb, they're, they're still terrible people doing terrible things and not learning. And that's a lot of our influences are American. So I'm not sure there's that much of a difference. I think that, of course, there are differences, but fundamentally, I think that they probably work in the same way. I mean, this is connected to newer writers, you know, looking for staffing and, you know, you staffed shows, you've read probably thousands of samples. Yeah. Um, what are some top reasons that you stop and toss aside a script you're reading? And what are some top reasons that you feel totally compelled to keep reading and possibly staff a writer? That's a really good question. Um, I think there are a couple things that I mean, I feel like when I feel like I've seen the show many times um, and there's nothing about this approach that tells me pretty quickly that it's gonna have a, a, a new enough angle that I'll wanna, I'll wanna keep reading. You know, if it's a cop procedural, just let me know in the first five pages why why this is going to be a little bit different than other cop procedurals. It doesn't have to be a whole scene. It doesn't, it could just be the character, you know, it could just be that this character, I always joke that, you know, um, a, a great main character is a, is a character who's fully committed to a terrible plan. Mm. That's really good. <laughs> I love that deeply. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, whatever that plan is, if we, the audience are like, whoosh, that is not gonna work. But that person is like dead set on like, this is how, this is what the game is and I'm gonna win it. And you're like, that's a, whew, that's a tough needle to thread. You know, then you're on board. Cause you're like, either they're gonna win and that's gonna really, they're gonna defy the odds or all the bad things that I think are about to befall them. <laughs> right. Commence, you know, so, uh, that's one thing I look for is just uh, that feeling of premise and 
a sort of unexpected quality to that premise. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I look for obviously is voice, you know, just um, that that character, you know, that that writer isn't cobbling together the voices of other writers. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, for a while I felt like everybody was trying to do Sorkin, you know, that was a while ago, but um, you know, and then everybody was trying to, you know, sort of whatever the flavor of the week is, <laughs> you know, people are sort of trying that voice on and, um, and, it's so important for writers to discover their own, their own voice. It's such a hard journey too. You know, it's, it's an easy thing for us, you know, who've been doing it for a while to say, but um, that is the, that is the work, right? That's the real work. Is yeah, that's the real work. And, you know, young writers often say to us, um, well, should I be doing a spec pilot or should I be doing another show, an episode of an existing show? Um, do you care what, what you're reading in terms of what you prefer or like what what should their resume what should what script should they have and you know should it be diverse or should they really be kind of narrowing in on a tone that they're really good at um in terms of yeah no um I yeah no no yeah um to what you said <laughs> they um it doesn't really matter to me I mean I'm just saying like for me it can be a play um, I've certainly hired a lot of um, more over the last few years, but I've hired a lot of playwrights um, just because you can tell they can write, you know, you're just like, wow, they took that. There was a play I read um, a while ago that was two guys talking about, you know, kind of like two guys in an, in an apartment and the stakes were kind of one of the characters sobriety. Um, of course, that's something I relate to because I'm, you know, a, a recovering, um, you know, trash can, um, <laughs> um, you know, whatever you, whatever you've got, uh, I'll take it. If it helps you not have those feelings, we go back to the beginning. Um, but um, so the, but the, the way it played out with these, and there was a third character who came in at a certain point, but I was just like, wow, the mastery of that premise, you know, so this person can write. Um, and that was enough for me. Um, I do think, you know, if you just love, if what you want to write is supernatural stories about um, monks in France, you know, if you just love period or you love, like definitely play in that space, um, you know, because we absolutely will say during staffing, like, okay, we've got, we've got, a person who appears to be really good at structure. We have a person who appears to be really good at, you know, or someone I've worked with before. So I'm like, I know what they're good at. Um, and then you're like, we need someone who really does supernatural, like who will understand the rules. And, you know, we'll, we'll say like, we need to fill this slot for this particular thing. Um, or someone who just can do laugh out loud funny, um, you know, if it's a more comedic thing. So, um, so I do think like lean into your strengths for sure and the show you want, the kind of show you want to be on or the kind of you know, movie you want to write. Um, I don't know if, if movie hiring people will read television, um, but they should because the two really talk to each other now, you know? No, they do. I got Captain Marvel off a of pilot, spec pilot. So I think they yeah. do. I think they're looking for the same thing. Like, is this writer the writer that we need? right yeah and they're hoping that you can do the basics right of the yeah. craft well 
I want to make sure we get to the question that we always get asked, which is how did you break into the business and or, you know, what advice do you have for emerging comedy writers? Um, Amber Ruffin, yeah. <laughs> um, honestly, I, it's, I'm realizing and like now in what the importance of networking and what that actually means. I am not, I am an introverted person who sometimes come off as standoffish. I'm not the type to just like go talk to people I don't know. I have a speech impediment. I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, and so actually forming relationships that was genuine uh, and having a skill set that could back up these relationships so that people are willing to be like, oh no, this person is great. Uh, work with them. Uh, my very first job was the break with Michelle Wolf. And I remember at the time when I submitted my packet, my lit agent quit the same day and I didn't know. So my packet never got to Michelle Wolf. And then Amber Ruffin, she texted me and she was like, hey, Michelle said she never got your packet. And I was like, what? <laughs> about I turned it in and I talked to my reps and they were like we don't know what's happening uh and then Amber was like just send it to me and I'll send it to her directly and from that I got hired because I got interviewed but because I had a person that was there to like vouch for me in a way that was like significant and then I had the the tools to back that up that got me my very first job and then we was writing for the White House Correspondents Dinner that year so it's kind of like stacked up um so that's how I kind of broken by going into late night but it wouldn't have happened unless I had Amber and she is now a theme as you can see throughout my career yeah, same. <laughs> um I mean kind of same uh the first gig I ever got was um uh 50 central a show on BET a sketch show um I wrote a packet and I got a job and then I didn't get a job for a really long time uh but in between that um Amber Ruffin was um, hosting the WGA Awards and hosting the Webby Awards. And she brought me and Dwayne on so that I could have credits, good ones. Cause writing for the WGA Awards is a good credit if you're trying to be a writer. Um, and she always um, helped us. I think one of the things too that uh, you talk about like advice for other writers is that um, it's fine. It's absolutely fine to look up to lots of people, but those people have friends. And when they're giving the other people jobs, it's usually their friends. Sorry, that's the way that it works. And not that they're bad people, but it's like you spend 10 years on an improv team with somebody. Are you going to give a job to the person who emailed you about picking your brain? Or are you going to give it to the bitch who was on your Herald team? It's going to be the bitch on your Herald team, right? So a lot of it is not the people who are directly above you. A lot of it is the people who are next to you side by side, the people who come up with you, right? Seth Myers and Amber Ruffin did Boom Chicago together, right? They're both incredibly talented, but you bring your friends along with you for the ride because you trust them and you know their skill set, right? This industry, obviously there's like nepotism and all that kind of shit, but a lot of nepotism comes from, I know you already, you're not going to fuck up or I can trust you already. That is already happening. So like Amber knew us, her little black babies. We got the job she had. Me and Dwayne had the job Tina Fey had. We had the job Ever Ruffin had. We had the job Andy Poehler had. We had the job Stephen Colbert had. Having that job gives you the credibility that, oh, if I had it and you got it, I can trust you. And Amber brought us with her 
as she went along and not gave it to us. We earned it because we had the skill set. So her always being like, if I got it, you got it, it's been life changing. But also when she asked us, when we were ready to write for her, we were so good, we got an Emmy nomination. Do you know what I'm saying? So it, it's all like, it all works together. So Amber Ruffin has yeah. been like so, so important to our careers because everyone ignored us. Everybody ignored us, but her. I've been the same bitch. I've had the same skill set this whole entire time. Amber Ruffin is the first black woman to ever write on a network late night show. Say network specifically, not cable. Wanda Sykes did the fucking Chris Rock show. Don't email me or come for me on Twitter. But she was the first black woman on a network show. Leno ain't never hired no black woman. Letterman ain't never hired no black woman. Carson ain't never hired no black woman. All your favorites ain't never hired a black woman. So the person who could help me got hired in 2014. That's why we ain't around. <laughs> you need people to help you. Right. You need mentors. And like, I got in this because my mentor believed in us and brought us along. Also, I'm very good. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I yeah, think, that. and you're good. Yeah, and I'm good. very good. Yeah. But like, yeah, because like, she, like, I think that's also a big thing is that like, as we were, she saw us working hard, like hard, like next to her and being like, oh no, we're not. And we never asked her for things. We were like, girl, we got we, we got to do what we got to do. And so, and that's something that I see as well as I'm moving up and being like, mm -hmm. who's the people that would do it without me? Those are the people that I'm going to help because I see that like, oh, I see you're doing the thing. And if I have any space to help, I'm going to help. If, and there are many people, I love giving advice because I think this business is trash. And I'm, all, and I'm always like, how can I help yeah. And the biggest issue that I see is people simply not doing the thing. Like a person will talk, come up to me and be like, hey, um, I want advice on how to be in a writer's room. And I would ask like, what do you know so far? And they would be like, nothing. I'm like, so why are you talking to me? Like, that makes no sense if you are not exhausting all that you can already. You haven't even Googled how to get into a writer's room, yet you're asking me? That makes me think you're selfish because you are not caring about my time. And that's something that I think me and Shantira are very good at. It's been like, we are going to work. We know this industry is booty trash. So in order <laughs> to succeed in any way, you the chips are already stacked against you. So you have to have a certain mindset yeah. to propel yourself. And I think Amber saw that in both of us of being like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we gonna do it. And then she was like, okay, I'm gonna help you. So like, that's my biggest thing. It's just been like, do the thing. Cause if you don't, why would anybody want to bring you with them? <laughs> He's so ready. I, I mean, like one of the things that happened to me is this guy asked me to connect him to my reps. And like, I had done a couple of stand-up shows to him. Cause I did that sometimes when I was in New York and I was like, you're black, you're queer, great. I usually don't do this. Send me your sample. It's been two years. I ain't never heard from that man since. Don't ask nobody for nothing if you ain't got nothing to show. Just what like, you want me to do? Send them <laughs> what? Your name? This is a nice boy. Get him a TV job. The fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Be ready so you don't have to get ready. So that exactly. you have an opportunity if you run into me. And also, don't just be like emailing me your scripts. Please don't do that. But no. what I'm saying is like, that boy missed his opportunity. 
right? I was ready. I was ready to go to bat for him. Nothing. Crickets. <laughs> I think now, he said, I want to help him. <laughs> be ready so you don't have to get ready is mm-hmm. the key to everything mm-hmm. we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Right, finish. And then if an opportunity does come along, like we both had with Amber, she was like, send me your stuff. And you had it. You were ready to go. You've mm-hmm. done the work. Yeah. And so I think that's it. That's why we talk about samples and, you know, doing the work and building relationships. So when that call does come, you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And would you give, what would your advice now being having now, now having been around a while uh, on the other end and to a new writer coming into a room, maybe for the first day, for the first time, what would your advice, you know, what, what would your approach be? What would you, what would you suggest? Uh, I would say, don't worry too much. You know, you go in and the thing that's that, like, we've built up writer's room so much that they can be intimidating. You know, people go in and they get in their own head. When you get in your own head, you're not there present for the conversation that's going on. Um, You know, if you're questioning, like, are these people smarter than me? Am I good enough for this? All that. You're, You're not thinking about what you're thinking about in there, which is like story, character, you know, pitching jokes if it's comedy plot lines all this which is why you're there and so it's i think the great sort of revelation is that everybody in that room is a writer and everybody in that room goes through all the insecurities writers have they you know everything you're thinking they all have thought or do think at every level and so it's easy to go in and be intimidated but but that room wants you to succeed um and no one's really keeping score. Usually it, it varies by, by showrunner and room, but, but as a staff writer, if you contribute anything, it's a plus, you know, your people know you haven't done it before. You're there to learn, but also this is your new community, you know, be open with people, um, be nice, be who you are. Uh, it's, and don't be intimidated because it's, you know, rooms by and large are very friendly. There are some that are very tense. It tends to filter down from the top. You know, like if the showrunner is a tense person, the room will be tense. If the showrunner is like a nice, respectful person, the room will be that way. Um, And so, you know, just go in and and be yourself and be a person. Now, the the folklore is that comedy rooms can be that can be super hard because everybody's trying to tell a better joke and kill the other joke. And that has not been your experience. Um, it has not, but I, but, but that's particular to me, I think in the shows that I've been on, I know people who have been in rooms that are like that. Um, I have worked with some writers who are like that. Uh, but generally, you know, I mean, yes, people want to get their jokes in, you know, if, if you are the person who's always getting your joke and you seem more valuable. Um, but if you're obnoxious and you're the person who is killing everybody else's joke without something better, that gets remembered too. You know, if you're the person in the room who's always just like uh, pointing out, if you're going to point out a problem, you have at least an attempt at the solution. You're not just saying this doesn't work or that joke is bad. Well, yeah, we all know that you got something better. Um, Otherwise, you're just complaining. Uh, And even if it's, you know, I'll sometimes if it's like, you know, what, I don't have the joke here, but I think it's in this area. You know, I think it has to do with basketball you know, whatever. And then someone else will go, oh, 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 and then they'll get it. And, you know, it's like an assist, which is the closest we come to being basketball players, I guess, is it's like, because otherwise it's like, we're a bunch of nerd writers, but it's, so just, you just want to keep moving the ball forward, um, I think. And it's, 
And if you're in a tense room, sometimes there's just no way to win. Um, you know, there's, I mean, I, I know someone who, who, uh, was on a show, very popular, big network show with a notoriously difficult showrunner and his mentor, when he, he went in the room said, sit back over there. This was a big room. And he's like, but that's behind a column. And he's like, exactly. There's less chance you'll get fired the first day. Uh, because that was a very tense showrunner who got annoyed by things and would fire people left and right constantly. Um, I feel like I've been lucky that I haven't been in rooms like that. Um, but just take everything in stride. Um, and again, just be yourself. Anything you contribute is a plus. You're a staff writer. No one is expecting you to break the whole show. You know, you're there to help. Um, and as you get more confident and as you kind of climb up the ladder, your responsibilities will grow. But, you know, I know people who've gone in as staff writers and from the get go, they're like the best person in the room. Um, because what we do is something that sometimes you're taught it and sometimes you're just good at it, you know, and usually you're somewhere in the middle. And so you could be coming in as a staff writer and already be better at this than someone who's been doing it for 20 years, you know, or you could be a newbie at it. You're just learning and that's OK. Um, but just don't worry about it. You know, it's all the advice I could give. It's also like, don't take too much advice. Just go in, enjoy the company. You're, you're making a TV show. You're getting paid to write. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Um, so just appreciate that. Have you ever had the experience of you struggling to get into the head of that showrunner or see writers struggling to get into the head of the showrunner? Like what they're writing, their episodes or whatever are just not lining up. Like, what do you do if you're that writer? Like, what's the, what's the solution to that? If you're not getting something, uh, I think communication is the key to all of it. So if, if you're out of sync somehow, go sit down with the showrunner, not in the room, you know, just say, Hey, can we sit down before or after at some point and just talk to them about it, you know, where you're struggling, what you're not getting. Um, uh, you know, the showrunner's job is to get the most out of everybody in the room. And so if you're struggling, it does no good for you to sit there and struggle for months when, when like an hour conversation or sometimes even 20 minutes with the showrunner one-on-one um, or with another writer. Like that's the other thing is you can go to other writers um, and sit down in their office or your office and just be like, I don't get this. I'm not getting this, um, you know, and, and most people will be supportive. You know, most showrunners showrunners will be like, great, okay, here is what this is. Let's work through it. Um, you know, uh, and then you get it, and then you're a productive part of the room again. You know, and that's just the process. And that's the thing I would always hammer into people is before you get in your own head, go talk to somebody, go talk to the showrunner, go talk to the co-EP if the showrunner is too busy. You know, um, lines of communication are open. My worst mistakes have been where I just tried to do it myself um, when really it would have been better to sort of go hash it out with, with somebody who is at sort of an upper level Um, uh, just because it's, it's, it's very much a group effort. You know, when you are breaking episodes as a group, everybody takes ownership of it. Um, So if you go off and go rogue and you come back in, you know, like the story didn't make sense to you when you went to go write it. And so you rebroke it. When you come back in, everybody is dumbfounded. They're like, but wait, we broke, we broke this. This was the story. Why did you go this way? And you say, well, this didn't work. 
it's much better to, when you realize it doesn't work, go back in the room with everybody and fix it as a group. You know, you can have what you think is your solution, but at least run it by people. Um, you know, because really even good though, advice. really yeah. good advice, sorry, yeah. even though keep going, even though, it was great be, advice. even though it may be your episode and your name is on it, 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 people it's, I can't explain it, but it's like in a good way, everybody feels like it's theirs, you know? Um, and in some shows you don't even write an episode, they're group written and they just, okay, whose turn is it to have a name on a script? It's yours. So this will be your episode. Um, and sometimes you will go and write the whole thing and almost no words will change. Uh, but it still is, this show belongs to the room. When you do start a room, um, cause we do have somebody who asked about, um, staffing, like if you're, it was your first day on, uh, on the job, let's say one of our listeners, is there anything that you love when your, your writers do, or like, just like, please don't do that. Um, well, you are in a room right now, so maybe you don't want to say that. But um, oh no, I can say because I have an amazing room of amazing writers, but um, who all do things I love almost ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Now, I mean, I think the biggest thing is to come in with a lot of ideas and never get discouraged if those ideas are turned down, and to come in the next day with a whole bunch of ideas. And I, I think that it's good to write those down even, you know, if the, if the person, like I've had writers who will even email me and say, you know, um, you know, uh, this is the pitch that I was thinking of or whatever, even I, I've, I have had our writer's assistant do that or my own assistant do that. And then, you know, if it's good, like I'll bring it into the room, but it's like, whether it's written, even if it's in the room saying like, okay, I write, I wrote this stuff down just so that I would have it or whatever. Cause especially if you get nervous or, or whatever, but but that means you are working your butt off. That means you are going home at the end of the night, you are thinking about what happened in the room and you are coming up with more ideas and solutions. Because I will say that what Ed Redlick taught me, like, or, or, you know, originally is the stuff I still think, which is you just are an idea machine. You just keep coming in with ideas. Even if they get shot down, you're never upset or offended or, or, shitty in any way about your ideas like you just keep coming back with more ideas and you are willing to be there with a smile on your face you know the whole time that the showrunner is there and, and I understand like sometimes with shitty showrunners that means it's until midnight um but but like the showrunner is under so much stress and has so much riding on this and it is the most important thing you know to this showrunner right now and so you should behave similarly you should behave as if it is the most important thing to you too and I know that is hard and not popular in this time where you know people obviously have families there's a lot of talk about work-life balance and all that kind of stuff but I just think you got to be willing to work your ass off you know and put in the extra time and just show like I may not be getting what you want right now, but each day that I come back, I'm going to try to get closer and closer to what it is. And even if I don't, I am not going to stop pitching. I'm going to keep giving you ideas, you know, after idea, that's, that's what I would do. And, 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 you know, it's, it, there's always a thing in the room of like, am I talking too much? Should I talk now? When should I talk? <laughs> that kind of thing. And I just think even saying it, like I just said, it is great you know, with some humor and some lightness and saying, am I talking too much, you know, or, or just say it privately to the showrunner too, or, or, you know, because like, if you had a room of five people who all were like, 
I had my pieces of paper and all my stuff and then they made me pitch all my stuff and then it's just like okay just, just stop for one second let's just talk because I'm also the person always like I want to consider these things or whatever so so you have to like balance it you know but look even if you don't get your ideas that you had in your piece of paper out every day you've got your piece of paper you've got ideas you know you're not just like like if I've said at the end of the day, like we really need to figure out X, Y, or Z, the people who come in with an idea of how to solve X, Y, and Z are my favorite people. Yeah, know, that's so. such good advice. That is such yeah. good advice. Yeah, really good advice. As always, we want to say thank you so much for tuning into the show. And if you've gotten something out of this show, whether it's improved writing or the motivation to push through that draft or even a little more self-confidence, we would love it if you all would write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really help spread the word about our show. We are 10 reviews away from 500, which would be very exciting and a huge milestone for us. And as we're a missional show, reviewing our show helps spread the mission. Speaking of reviews, I would love to read a couple from some of you, and I will start with Emily Brundage. She says, I'm a head writer in kids TV animation, and I've fallen in love with this podcast. Thank you, Megan Lorian, for allowing yourselves to be so vulnerable to us as listeners, a trait I greatly appreciate. You delve into what it's really like to be a TV writer in this industry, the highs and the lows, and in a way that's so relatable and comforting. I also appreciate getting the perspectives of the guests that you bring on your podcasts, the executives, producers, and writers. I hope to get to thank you both in person one day, but for now, this shining review will have to do... Thank you so much, Emily. And uh, we love when we hear working writers uh, review the podcast as well. So thank you for taking the time. I know you're probably very busy. All right, up next we have JLCC03, who says, Pro insights and practical advice for writers. I stumbled upon this podcast and I am hooked. I love the insights the hosts give about writing screenplay outlines, drafts, file management, as well as the ups and downs of projects, writers' rooms, and dealing with self doubt or pressure. True inspiration for working artists. Thank you so much, JLCCO3. Um, keep listening. All right, finally, we have Chucky Love 69 who says, This is amazingly helpful. I've been pouring through this, and I cannot get enough. Meg, Lorian, and the guy, <laughs> I think I'm the guy, you can call me Jeff, <laughs> are super open about their process and the trials and tribulations in this screenwriting thing. Priceless information delivered efficiently. I'm grateful. Chucky, thank you so much for the review, and um, keep listening. We really appreciate it. As I mentioned, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode featuring self-compassion expert Krista Neff. It's going to be a good one. Make sure you don't miss it. And until then, keep writing.